Welcome to the Tone Zone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Dr. Atalia Peiser, a clinical fellow at UChicago Medicine, who happens to also be my fiance. Uh, Atalia, thanks for joining us. It's delighted to be here. Oh, likewise. So we're often told that Greek and Roman doctors stand at the roots of Western medicine. Um, but these men, these supposed forefathers of Western medicine, live in a world that recognized no distinction between medicine and magic, that had no real standards of training or anything like medical school, and that discouraged experimentation and dissection. And so I'm hoping that, as a physician, you can help us understand how much modern medicine really owes to its classical forebears. Um, now this is complicated by the fact that there's no single tradition of ancient medicine. Um, the dominant theory, or what becomes the dominant theory, is what we call humor theory. Um, this is pioneered by uh, Hippocrates in the, the classical era, and then Galen, the great Roman doctor, makes it definitive later on. And the idea, as I'm sure you've heard before, is that there's four fluids that course through the body. Um, there's blood, there's phlegm, and then there's yellow and black bile. And uh, these are responsible for the operations of the body. And when they're in balance, the body is healthy. But when, thanks to injury or disease, they're out of whack, uh, the body becomes sick and the patient can die. And so a doctor's responsibility is to balance the humors. And in practice, that means a lot of bleeding, which persisted till the 19th century in some quarters. Now, I, I've not been to medical school, but I'm reasonably sure that they are not taught the theory of humors anymore. If I'm wrong, correct me. Um, I do, however, recall you telling me at some point that leeches still have a role in modern medicine. Yes, yes, they do, actually. And, and I have to say that often we joke about someone's humors being <laughs> ill-balanced if we're not entirely sure what's going on with them. Um, but yes, leeches are, leeches are still used in medicine, and uh, they're actually specially bred on a sterile mm. leech farm. So you can imagine someone at a dinner party somewhere saying, ah, oh, yes, I work on a, I work on a leech farm <laughs> and everyone else being appalled. Um, but they're, they're still used and, um, you know, they, they, they secrete this mixture of, of goo in there. <laughs> that's the technical word in their <laughs> saliva that contains a, a local anesthetic. So you don't, you don't feel them latching on and a blood thinner. And this is the most um, relevant part for, for us as physicians. So when you put a, um, a skin graft or any other kind of tissue graft um, into a patient or onto a patient, uh, there's often a, um, uh, what we call venous congestion, so that mm. the tiny little capillaries in the in the tissue get get congested and clogged up, and that can obviously um, cause disaster when you're hoping that a, a graft will take. And so, putting leeches on, which will you know secrete this this blood thinner into those tiny little blood vessels where we you know cannot get to otherwise, can really help um, maintain the patency of tissue. And so, yeah, mm. we, we still use leeches. Also, maggots. Yeah. <laughs> We, we still use maggots in, in, in some parts of medicine. Uh, in the vascular surgery floors, you'll often see deliveries of maggots where they, um, they're they so fantastic at, at eating up necrotic flesh and leaving the healthy stuff. Um, they probably should get a pay rise for their job. <laughs> there we go. I imagine summoning the leech master like a sepulchral gong of some sort, <laughs> and like a cowled figure, you know, emerges with a pewter uh, basin of leeches. But it's it's uh, usually some beleaguered porter, but uh, uh, <laughs> one enough. can imagine. <laughs> um, all right, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Now, now in the ancient world, there were various schools of medical practice, um, different approaches to the practice of medicine. Um, perhaps the dominant theory, or one of the dominant theories, are the people we call the empiricists, 
who believed that uh, theory was bunk, basically, that all we can know as doctors are what we've learned from experience, that we learn by rote that certain treatments and certain uh, sorts of surgeries seem to be effective. And inquiring into causes in a world where surgery is often fatal is just a bad idea. Um, their opponents are the people we call the dogmatists, um, who emphasize theory above all, that the body has to work in a certain way, and that understanding you know, the, the feng shui of the body um, is the first step to any kind of cure. And between these two schools um, are the people we call the Methodists, who have this kind of um, almost a cult-like devotion to the idea that the whole body has to be in balance. It's kind of tied to the humorous thing. That any disorder in the flux or stasis of the uh, the humors um, is what medicine is all about. Now, between these various schools, there were intense disagreements, um, often savage ad hominem attacks, which we see um, often with uh, still smoking faintly um, in the works of Galen, who is the uh, the Roman physician we know most about. And I know that in modern medicine, there is of course a diversity of approaches in many respects. Um, but uh, how, I guess, heated are today's theoretical disagreements? Oh, wow. Well, uh, one only needs to to um, hark back to the controversy over the treatment of COVID at the beginning mm. and, and vaccination safety, of course, to, to realize that, uh, uh, you know, there's no consensus on a lot of things in medicine still. And, you know, I've, I've certainly seen people storm out of conferences and get up to the podium and ask snarky questions. <laughs> um, and there's definitely, um, I, I would say there's definitely still schools of thought in a, a lot of medicine and, 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 you know, you often feel that that the doctors are this kind of doctor or that kind of doctor. But perhaps the most, um, you know, uh, reminiscent of the, the schools of thought that you were speaking about would be that those who are into holistic treatment mm. versus, uh, you know, um, treating just the disease and and people who incorporate, you know, diet and microbiome and things like that, which is which is becoming more popular and, and more. Um, uh, accepted in in western medicine um and I, yeah i think even in clinical trial design you know we have um schools of thought in in statistics um, frequentists um <laughs> Uh, who have different different attitudes to to uh, proving and designing uh, statistical analyses to discover you know what works for for, for patients and and there's uh, there's often extremely heated uh, discussion <laughs> between them. <laughs> I'm imagining a, a frequentist conference now somehow, but uh, um, but anyway, uh, so in another relic, um, perhaps the most. I guess to, to the layperson like myself, when we think of what survives in medicine from antiquity, we think of the, the Hippocratic Oath, um, which is, you know, again, we'll talk about in a moment about how controversial it has become or how important it still is. But this harks back to the founder of Western medicine, this guy Hippocrates, um, who lived, we think, um, in the 5th and 4th centuries BC on the island of Kos um, in, the, in the Aegean, and was the founder, or at least the, um, you know, the most important figure in this school of medicine whose primary... Um, I guess modus operandi, um, was to avoid excessive intervention with patients. Um, do no harm was the primary principle we always hear about. And again, in a world where infection is rampant and where surgery is often fatal, that's a good thing. They're, not, they're doing as little as possible and therefore killing fewer people than most of their fellow doctors are. Uh, and this oath evolves gradually. It's not from the era of, of Hippocrates himself. It's from the school that kind of um, grows around him and uh, there on coast. 
but it does emerge in antiquity. Um, it's this idea that you should avoid harming patients if at all possible, and that doctors should cooperate or collaborate. There should be kind of a collegial atmosphere in the medical field. And uh, eventually this Hippocratic Oath, which again evolves gradually, and in its form we have it now, is really Roman more or less, becomes a big part of medical school, uh, an oath that you take, a rite of passage in some cases. So, so what is the status of the Hippocratic Oath uh, in modern medical schools and modern medicine? Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and and it's similar actually in the UK and uh, where I trained, and and in the US that that some medical schools still, uh, you know, have you get up and recite um, the Hi Hippocratic Oath and at the end of uh, your graduation, and um, but it, it tends to be a, a slightly more updated uh, form in. Um, I think 64, uh, a professor from Tufts um, who was delightfully named uh, Professor Lasagna uh, <laughs> rewrote the, the Hippocratic Oath. And so it's sometimes called the Lasagna Oath, uh, fondly, um, and, and, and made it a bit more relevant. You know, there's stuff in, in the original one about, you know, not giving women a pessary to induce abortion, which, which um, you know, many physicians these days would, would uh, deem necessary. Um, and there's another part about not using the knife, because, of course, in those mm -hmm. days, uh, surgeons and, and, and medical doctors were completely different. So, it, we, you know, we promised not to, not to cut the patient. Um, <laughs> but actually, these days, we, we often do a bit of both. Um, but I think there, there are aspects of it that are nice and, and still relevant today. There's a, a bit about uh, maintaining patient confidentiality. Um, and there's a bit about treating bonded men and, and free men the same, mm. which I think is definitely relevant if you, um, uh, uh, you know, look after um, uh, incarcerated patients. And um, I, I think overall it's it's nice to have some sort of common ethical code mm -hmm. um but it's certainly not not uniform across the western world at least mm -hmm. yeah it's more i guess uh, aspirational in the sense that we have this common oath and that we still think it has this antiquity which you know confers a sort of authority upon it yeah um so you, know, you mentioned before how how surgery is kind of distinct from medicine in the ancient world and that is true there are people who are who specialize in certain kinds of surgeries um like removing gallstones for example um a big problem in rome with its weird hard water um, but in general, medicine is divided in the ancient world um, into three grand branches, which are um, dietetics, pharmacology, and finally surgery. Um, and, and dietetics is the least invasive of the three, is the oldest and kind of the most or the least controversial. Um, and it really evolves, we see most of it anyway, around athletes, because at the end they have to uh, train you know, to the prime of their life, you know, be at the peak physical condition. And they're often advised, for example, athletes to eat massive amounts of meat and nothing else, kind of classical keto. It's kind of fun to see a parallel there. Um, but not goat meat. It makes your sweat rancid, apparently. Um, we also hear about wine. Wine is used as a medical cure um, on a massive scale, different blends of wine, different kinds of wine. My mom is convinced, by the way, someone, some doctor told her that, you know, a glass of wine for dinner, you know, makes heart disease, you know, vanish or something. And she's still convinced <laughs> of this. She's happy. Um, or even folk remedies are kind of rolled into this, like cabbage, for example. Uh, Cato, the Roman author, believed that cabbage was the panacea. Cabbage made everything better. And he kind of threw cabbage into every remedy he, you know, he thought of, and I guess it didn't hurt <laughs> Sounds anybody. Sounds like everyone's Russian grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he was doing it before it was cool. Um, and uh, in any case, and, and even exercise is seen as an extension um, sort of of dietetics. Uh, the, the Greek gymnasium with its running track and its light weights is sort of uh, you know, it's part and parcel of this same idea of health. But uh, in all of this, and the idea of what causes disease and the idea of you know, what health constitutes, there's no real conception of 
why people get sick suddenly. You know, people get injured, obviously they understand that the injury is causing their imbalance of humors or their leg to drop off, whatever it might be. But there's no idea of microbes. There's no germ theory. And it seems amazing to me that it took until the 19th century for medicine to, to really cotton on to the idea of germ theory, of microbes as the cause of pathogens. Um, and do you have any ideas really on this and why it took so long for them to identify micros microscopic organisms as a cause of so many diseases? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And, uh, you know, I did my homework on this actually mm. when I knew I was going to do this podcast. And and there are several references in Galen's uh, work about this, the seeds of fever and mm -hmm. the seeds of disease. Um, and he, uh, you know, wrote that unless you um, followed the the uh, physician's therapeutic regimen to the T, some mm -hmm. seeds of the disease would remain and cause a recurrence or a relapse of the disease, mm -hmm. uh, which is an excellent way of getting people to, to do as they're told. Um and so, you know, there's this there's, there's, uh, reference to these, you know, tiny little uh, spores that could that could uh, could cause disease, and this sort of morphed over the years to the, um, I think it was called the animacula theory, mm. where tiny, tiny little animals were uh, that, that were impossible to see were floating around and causing disease, and I, I think there was some. Some Roman chap, uh, Varro, maybe, yeah. who wrote that mm -hmm. uh, there's swamp in the swampy areas. There's these uh, tiny, minute creatures that float around and, and cause serious diseases. And you know, so I think they they, they knew, and they um, uh, just needed to wait for the advent of the microscope, the light mm -hmm. microscope in the mid 1800s. And 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 lo and behold, we 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 can see these this other world um, that was only thus far alluded to. So mm -hmm. you know, they were pretty ahead of their time to be to be honest. Yeah, they seem to understand the principles for sure. Yeah, Vero does mention that. that that's a good one. And um, there, there's a few other references to this miasma, you know, kind of the, the venomous mm -hmm. air that has something in it. Um, and of course, they're aware that infection is caused by proximity. They know that much, but they can't quite, you know, what before Leeuwenhoek and friends, they don't really see the little, you know, things twitching in the, right. <laughs> on the slides. Um, so to turn from... Um, the world of dietetics and exercise um, to pharmacy, uh, to drugs. Uh, so again, in a world where surgery is dangerous, or at least often inadvisable, um, both infectious and chronic disease are often treated with just drugs. Um, but there are some exceptions to this. And one of them is gout, of all things, where some doctors advise what it amounts to a primitive form of electroshock therapy, which means standing on a black electric eel until your infected leg goes numb. Um, also for headaches with multiple eels, in fact, you keep kind of applying eels until the headache, you know, goes away or you lose consciousness, I guess. Um, as a medical doctor, uh, any thoughts on the efficacy of eels? Um, <laughs> I feel this like this this room was probably started by the local eel farmer uh, in Rome. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, we actually do, and there is some there is some um, evidence that this that this does does work. We uh, maybe not with eels though. We use uh, you know uh, transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. Tens mm. is the is the acronym for it. Um, you can buy these little machines from from pharmacies and from um, from you know sort of certain shops uh, that are applied to the the skin for ache muscle muscular aches and pains and and, and menstrual cramping and you know the theory is that uh, 
the um, you know these little buzzes to the nerves distract the the, the pain signals and, and relieve pain and it's a very popular thing to use and, and um, I, I believe even um, paid for by insurance in some cases in which case they <laughs> they have the highest standards of whether there's uh, actually evidence to, <laughs> right. to warrant shelling out for certain treatments um, and yeah so electricity is used and of course the obvious is is uh, you know restarting people's hearts if they've mm-hmm. had certain types of cardiac arrest and um, there's also electroconvulsive therapy that we use in in patients with catatonic depression uh, where you apply electrodes to the scalp and induce a seizure with pretty high um, uh, currents and mm-hmm. sometimes a hard sell to the patient to, <laughs> to say that this is what we've got to do but it works really well and so yeah we do we do still use a lot of electricity in medicine hmm. I wonder if like the leech guy would have a silent in eels or something you know <laughs> yeah probably um, um, fascinating. Um, oh, and uh, you know, and, and by the way, for everyone listening, again, nothing in this is supposed to be medical advice. Don't apply eels to yourself, please. And if you do, don't blame me. <laughs> but uh, anyway, turning to other things, other kind of eccentric cures. Um, now, rabies, of course, is a terribly fatal disease in the ancient world, especially so, where they don't understand, you know, how to address it. Um, and Celsus, one of our chief sources for uh, Roman medicine says that the only cure for rabies or hydrophobia, you know, the fear of water, is to chuck the victim into a pool of water and let him sink until he drinks a bunch of water, fish him out and do it again until he, quote, recovers. Um, I'm assuming there's no validity in this approach to treating rabies, but, you know, please, you can confirm with... (laughs) I shouldn't think so. Uh, uh, yes. I, I suspect the only people that survived the dunking were those that did not, in fact, have rabies uh, right. to begin with, <laughs> uh, which is, is uniformly fatal, even in, in mm. even in, in in today's society, unless you can get access to um, the antibodies that we have mm-hmm. uh, generated against rabies within 24 hours of being infected, and, and that gives you a shot at survival. And there's also mm. a, a preventative uh, vaccination, but um, you know, it's uh, it's it's extremely unlikely that this uh, waterboarding of, of days of yore would be <laughs> at all effective. It actually reminds me of dunking of witches. It doesn't it, right? Yeah. In the Middle Ages. <laughs> so we always figure out the same ways to torture people. Yeah, you know, you got the pool of water, use it somehow or other. But uh, <laughs> um, so we still have the greatest ancient herbal manual written by a man named Dioscorides in the first century. And this contains, this is a vast compendium of folk remedies, um, some effective, many not, but quite a few, um, thanks to trial and error, um, with some effect against a vast range of uh, symptoms. And in particular, um, Dioscorides harps upon the benefits of using willow bark as a painkiller. And uh, this, of course, had later ramifications, didn't it? Uh, willow bark. Yes, yeah, we we discovered that the that that's uh, uh, the source of aspirin. So uh, I think the indigenous peoples in North America have been using this um, even long before uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 Greeks of Romans were using it. And uh, uh, it was subsequently discovered that that's the uh, that's the root of the chemical aspirin. So definitely works to 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 chew on a chunk of willow bark if you've got toothache, but not that I would recommend getting your aspirin. It's pretty cheap these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every if the bark is too thick, especially, you know, you're just making the problem even worse. But, um, and also, something I wanted to ask you about, so Dioscorides, the, the main ingredient in many of his uh, prescriptions is myrrh, you know, as in like the frankincense and myrrh, the, 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 the mm. spice. Um, 
is myrrh or used for anything in modern medicine? Do you have any idea why it may have been used so extensively? I I have no idea, uh, but I bet those um, physicians who are trained in in, uh, in Chinese medicine would have an idea. I'm, mm. I'm sure it's 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 used uh, it's used there, but uh, I have no idea why it would be used <laughs> in most of medicine. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, that makes two of us. I think that the one <laughs> one theory I would have, just kind of off the cuff, is that often these doctors who are working for rich patients try to incorporate um, high class mm. ingredients. So an expensive aromatic like myrrh, it looks good if you're just dashing a little bit of that into your prescription. It is kind of a uh, yes. placebo Saffron antibiotics with exactly. my next prescription. <laughs> <laughs> it won't help that. you, but it'll smell good, right? You know, that's probably, <laughs> I think that might be where it's coming from. Another thing that's mentioned by Dioscorides, my many other manuals, is opium. You know, the opium poppy is grown extensively in the classical world. It's not used primarily um, for the, the narcotic uh, nectar, but it, it is uh, used you know, quite a bit. People eat the poppies even. Um, and uh, it's, it's prescribed, though, in medical manuals as both a painkiller and a sedative. Um, and of course, we have discovered that opium has many applications in modern medicine, too, haven't we? Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. one only has to look at the uh, the opioid ec- epidemic in uh, in the Western world to to see uh, uh, the effects of, of opium these days. Um, we have many synthetic and um, derived opiate uh, drugs, which are of critical importance in in the in pain relief, uh, for surgical and, and cancer related pain. So it, it's super important. Um, and uh, it doesn't surprise me that they'd figured that one out pretty early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but yeah, still still widely used and still important um, mm. for some people. Yeah, you know, and, and often you know all we have are these these prescriptions. You know, that the list of ingredients, with often without, without without quantity is given. So we have a hard time figuring out how effective these cures, whether dosing of opium or anything else, actually were. You know, the, 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 that the pharmacist or the doctor would kind of. Um, guesstimate how much was needed of any given component and go from there. And actually, some doctors were very protective of their particular recipes for drugs. There was one guy who wrote all of his rec- his recipes in code, and uh, Galen and friends spent years trying to figure out what he was actually saying. It was a whole mm. big thing in Rome's medical well, community. Modern pharmaceutical companies probably do something similar, all their data's <laughs> encrypted. So, you know, you've got to protect right. the bottom line. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. The proprietary drugs were still a thing mm-hmm. then, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we did find in one case some actual ancient pills. Um, there was a shipwreck found off the course of Italy. Um, and uh, there, um, among in this sealed uh, container, they discovered um, in what appeared to be ancient pills, um, a combination of zinc compounds, um, iron oxide, mm. starch, beeswax, pine resin, and less helpfully, other plant-derived materials. Um, can, can you think of any ideas what a combination of zinc, uh, iron oxide, starch, and beeswax, if anything, um, would have been geared toward, uh, might have addressed? I mean, it's hard <laughs> to say, but iron-containing um, concoctions have been used, you know, for, for millennia as uh, sort of energy boosters, put some pep in your step, and that's, mm-hmm. that's due to iron deficiency anemia being a big deal. I suppose that you're you know, if your diet is purely grain with the occasional dormouse, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there was a, <laughs> an issue with iron deficiency in the ancient world. And uh, I, I would imagine so, particularly 
particularly in menstruating women. Mm. So, um, yeah, an iron containing pill sounds like a great idea and, and probably would help people's energy. The zinc, I'm not so sure about, um, although people still, um, you know, like to attribute their survival from COVID and whatever other, you know, noxious uh, insult they've had to zinc or various mm. other um, ingredients. But, um, you know, I think, you know, we do use zinc. Zinc is used in uh, creams for acne and diaper rash and it's used as a sunscreen mm-hmm. um, I wouldn't imagine that it was used for that, that <laughs> back then but perhaps wound healing might have been helpful for there's parts of the immune system that are that are necessary to have uh, replete zinc levels for so mm-hmm. um, yeah who knows but I, I feel like the iron is a bit of a sure hit uh, you know if I if I was walking down the street in Rome and, uh, I, and I saw a, an advert for an iron pill knowing what I know now I'd, I'd, I'd take it I think <laughs> I don't know about the beeswax and starch probably they're fillers to to yeah. bulk out the pill make it look more sort of mm-hmm. pill-like it goes down Keep smooth going. I assume with the beeswax too is yes yes it's actually a, a fun, uh, in Lucretius, a Roman poet mentions um, giving honey with medicine to children, you know, kind of that, that old mm. thing to make it taste more sweet. And uh, oh, well, we still do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. The spoonful of sugar uh, yeah. or, or honey in this case. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny how these things, uh, they, they come back around. Moving from pharmacy, from medications to wounds. Uh, now, of course, when it comes to anything gaping in the body, uh, Classical medicine has kind of a patchy record, uh, so to speak, that they aren't really good at avoiding infection because they don't fully understand what causes it. Um, but they've stumbled by trial and error on certain things that seem to reduce the risk of people um, you know, going septic and dying on them. Um, and so we have a list given by Celsus, this Roman doctor, uh, on ways to close wounds. And this list includes, and I'll read them off here, um, honey, egg whites, frankincense, fish glue, and gum arabic. Now, I know a few of these things are sticky, obviously, but um, are any of these things, you know, if you are stuck in ancient Rome, um, which of these things, if any, would you actually want to smear on a, a wound? <laughs> Speaking yeah, I, I would. I would probably try honey. We still use we still use honey these days and have honey impregnated wound dressings and use mm. honey in wounds, and it's it's got some antiseptic properties in it, it for sure. Uh, the fish glue is is really interesting. That one, um, I think it's it's still used in some parts of the world. Fish fish goo is is chock full of fibrin, which is the mm. the, the the protein that. Um, sticks your blood cells together when you're trying to make a blood clot or a scab if you cut yourself. So um, I think packing a wound full of um, fish fish gloop, uh, for want of a better word, is is probably not a bad idea if you're if you're if you otherwise have have not much else to use. Mm-hmm. Um, we use we use all sorts of bits from fish actually. There's uh, there's research going on now about using fish scales on um, patients with uh, burns mm. uh, as a sort of pseudo skin um, to keep it clean and keep it waterproof. Of course, fish are waterproof, so uh, um, fish are the source of, of quite a few medical interventions. Uh, I, I'm not sure about what else did you mention? Myrrh and frankincense. I don't know. <laughs> uh, frankincense, I mentioned gum Arabic uh, and egg whites or the other ones. Uh, yeah. Again, they might be something to, to, to make it texture, mm-hmm. te- texture appropriate or, uh, um, hold, hold the, the, the glue together. Mm-hmm. They might, might just be, be fillers to be honest. Hmm. I know. I remember reading in the Iliad um, where when one of Homer's heroes gets a wound, they'll 
dump wine over it. And I guess that there is some evidence that wine at least is some antiseptic properties. Um, yeah, it's the alcohol wine. in it. It's right, the alcohol right. in it. We mm-hmm. use that to, to disinfect wounds or, you know, uh, if you're out in the field anyway, not in, so much in the hospital, we use <laughs> yeah. hygiene. But, uh, but yeah, but mm-hmm. sloshing, uh, sloshing wine. I mean, vodka is probably better or tequila, assumes, but if, right. you're, if you only have wine, that's <laughs> the best you've got. I would, I would do that if I was in a pinch. Not, not a bad idea. Oh, interesting. Now, Galen, this great and august Roman doctor, wrote about almost everything um, and did mention in passing different ways of addressing wounds um, in a pinch. And at one point, he advises those who have suffered an injury to the foot and to the toe in particular, that if they can't get to a doctor, one way to uh, at least redress their suffering is to urinate upon that injured toe just again and again until it gets better. Um, So speaking to you as a medical professional, is there anything to just (laughs) dousing an injured toe in urine? Uh, no, uh, the short answer is no. The long answer is, you know, that there's all, you know, from time to time, there's this resurgence of interest in uh, alternative, um, you know, cures for things, and, and people mm-hmm. have been doing all sorts of things with urine, attempting to drink it and, and, and wash with it, and, and all sorts. But, you know, in contrary to to, to popular opinion, uh, urine is not actually sterile. It, it contains uh, another microbiome. Um, of uh, bacteria and viruses, and uh, I would not put urine in a wound. I know people <laughs> people like to uh, there's a sort of a recommendation to put it on a jellyfish sting. Oh, yeah. uh, if you get stung by a jellyfish, again, do not do it. It's not going to help. You know, maybe the ammonia and the urea in it um, mm. temporarily, you know, burn and, and and confuse your nerve endings and maybe provide some sort of pain relief, uh, distraction pain relief from from the jellyfish. <laughs> Sting, but um, it's it's not good for you, and you'll you'll end up with an infection. So please, no peeing on things. <laughs> good to know. Good to know. Um, so moving um, from wounds um, into actual surgery, which, as I mentioned before, is a last resort in the ancient world because it, it is so dangerous in most cases. Um, people do survive remarkably invasive surgeries in, in in some instances from just good luck. You know, they actually like Galen again will open up the, the abdominal cavity once um, of an injured slave and. Um, scraped away a bit of infected pericardium, I think, and the guy survived somehow. He felt cold the rest of his life, apparently, which probably wasn't great. Um, but in any case, uh, part of the problem with surgery in the ancient world, beyond just the risk of infection, which is rampant, is they don't really know what's going on inside the, the, the body cavity, especially, because dissection is taboo. Um, there are a few periods, really one short period um, in the Hellenistic world where it's okay, um, where a king gives condemned criminals to his doctors for them to kind of experiment on, which is not great in itself, but let them learn a lot about the body. Um, but besides this short episode, it's just barbarians, dead barbarians could be dissected sometimes, but only kind of, you know, in a, a casual way, you know, not, not, not fully, uh, if it's, you know, uh, um, uh, flensed out. And so they don't really know how the organs operate, how they connect and what they're doing. And so they're really working blind in many cases, which has catastrophic results. Um, however, despite this lack of knowledge about what's inside the body, their surgical instruments um, are pretty sophisticated in a way that seems to suggest that they did this stuff fairly often. And I sent you a picture um, of a kit uh, found in Pompeii, a doctor's kit. And uh, of these things, uh, how much of this looked familiar, just out of curiosity? 
you know, terrifyingly quite a lot of it, <laughs> which it doesn't, doesn't, uh, won't reassure the, the members of the public <laughs> looking at this video. Um, yeah, there were, there were quite a few. And the most striking I thought was the speculum, uh, which, uh, you know, for vaginal exams looks pretty much exactly the same as it does these days. And, you know, I was, I was, I was wondering if, uh, if men, if men had vaginas, if, if they would have re- very rapidly come up with some a better idea and uh, had more stake in the in the game. Um, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, it, seems, mm. see, it seems pretty uh, pretty barbaric when you look at it. Um, uh, I think also the ENT and the orthopedic tools. Um, you know, some of them were probably quite similar, and we still make burr holes in patients' skulls when they've got bleeding bleeding really? on the brain and high mm-hmm. pressure that needs to be released. And so, you know, a drill is a drill. Um, sometimes we use electrical <laughs> ones that sort of stop automatically when they sense a change in, in pressure mm-hmm. and that you're through the bone, which is obviously very helpful. But yeah, right. um, there are lots of manual versions of this, and um, and certainly in the developing world, still using uh, manual tools to make burr holes. Um, and I think uh, the ENT surgeons as well up until the turn of last century we're using um uh, uh, you know instruments that look like melon ballers to take out people's tonsils <laughs> so you know we, we we have made some process but i think uh i think uh your viewers would be surprised at how um uh, let's say ahead of their time the ancient world uh, was yes. rather than how behind the times we are <laughs> <laughs> diplomatic of you yes um you know, it's funny you mentioned the burr holes. Um, you know, trepanation, of course, you know, cutting that, like a larger chunk out of the skull is a thing, a big thing for the Romans. And I remember that they had, uh, again, a bone drill that was probably very comparable to what you use now. Yeah. And uh, one advice I remember reading about is they advised the patient to get wool stuffed into his ear so he can't hear the sound of the bone being, you know, drilled away, which feels helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, so to, to wrap all this up, um, what, in your opinion, or how much and to what degree um, has modern medicine retained um, its classical roots uh, in your experience and your sense as a doctor? I think the thing that was most striking, you know, to me when when you were sending me materials before this interview was was the attention to documentation um, that that these uh, you know physicians and philosophers had when they were when they were making these discoveries and documenting exactly what they'd done and and how much had survived uh, the the you know interceding years. Um, and of, of course, documentation is very important for us these days as well. Um, you know, the arguing <laughs> certainly <laughs> remained <laughs> and held the test of time. I guess these days we call it peer review, but it's, it's <laughs> arguing nonetheless. Um, and, you know, lastly, I would say perhaps this is a little naive, but but trust in physicians. And I, I think that just reflects people's, um, you know, desperation when they're, when they're feeling ill, that they want to um, believe that, that someone's going to help make them better, which is just as, as, as um, you know, uh, relevant today as, as it was back then. Um, and I think we have a, a duty to, to respect that and uphold those, those Hippocratic principles um, to, to make sure that, that, that the public still have a... Um, you know, a, a respect and trust in us. So I think that was, that was nice. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, Italia, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, yeah, well, very much likewise. And everyone listening, uh, thanks and uh, come back soon. <laughs>